Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. All the way at the beginning, if you don't know where that is. Genesis chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 26 through 28. God, of course, this is the really toward the end of the creation narrative, and God has been creating not only the environment in which life is to be set, but also life itself in its various forms. And in verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And turn with me to Genesis chapter 9, just a few chapters forward here. And I'm actually, the, the bulletin has us beginning, I think, in verse 5. But I'm going to start in verse 1. Because what's happening here is actually a restatement of God's blessing of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember, by this time in chapter 9, the flood has come and humanity has been destroyed. And, and in a sense, God is starting over with Noah. And so God restates the original blessing to humanity that he had given back in Genesis chapter 1, part of which we just read. So beginning in verse 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's a statement that we read in Genesis 1 as well. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Today, as you have already heard, is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And when we talk about the sanctity of life, we essentially mean that human life is sacred, that it is holy. And as uh, we have read these passages this morning to affirm that the sanctity of life is a biblical idea. It is based on the idea that there is a God who is an authority over us, who has created us. And the fact is that as a society and a culture begins to uh, reject the idea of God and his authority, you can be sure that the idea of the sanctity of life will begin to diminish along with that. 
And there are all kinds of examples of that, and uh, especially when we think about the consequences of atheistic political philosophy in the 20th century. The 20th century is an incredible study of what happens to our view of humanity when we reject God. Um, An example of that is Nazi philosophy, which essentially was based on Darwinism and the survival of the fittest and the idea that we now have the capacity to engineer for ourselves um, the perfect race of human beings. And in that process, it doesn't matter how much blood is spilled because it's inconsequential. They are the weak. They are to be discarded. And we can see that in communism in its different manifestations in different uh, places in the 20th century with the Soviet Union and the, the, the terrible amount of life lost there in the communist experiment. The same in China, especially during the Cultural Revolution and uh, the killing fields of Cambodia and other places, the the. There, there is just this legacy of atheism that leads to the discarding of this very fundamental idea. Life is sacred. And to be honest, it's cause, I think, for great concern for our own society as we see the uh, society in which we live um, increasingly discard the idea of God, the authority of God. We are already seeing how the sanctity of life is diminishing in our own culture. And I am not terribly optimistic for the road ahead if we continue on the path that we are on. Scripture bases the sanctity of human life on the fact, as we read this morning, that human beings have been created in the image of God. And as such, humans are unique among all of the creatures that inhabit the earth. Uh, In Genesis 2, we didn't read this this text, but in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, the text says that God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And that's a really significant thing if you think about it, because like all the other creatures... Humanity is material. We are made of the stuff of the earth. God formed Adam from the stuff of the ground, from the dust. But unlike the other creatures, humanity also contains the breath of God. God breathed his life into Adam And he became a living being. And so human beings are unique. We are not just material creatures. We also possess a soul. We are spiritual beings. We possess the breath of God. There are several implications, I think, that relate to the sanctity of life that we can draw from this truth that scripture teaches that we are unique as human beings created in the image and the likeness of God. 
The first implication is that God has an eternal purpose for human beings. And that purpose is an exalted purpose. His purpose is to make us like him. In order that he can share with us a relationship of love and intimacy. And human beings are unique in that way. Sometimes I think that when we read that statement that God says, let us make man in our likeness, in our image, that we conclude from that, that that basically what that means is that we're all kind of like him. You know, we possess the ability to love and to reason and to be creative and other things. And that's certainly a part of it. And there is the image of God is inherent in every human being in those ways. But there is another part of being made in the image of God that I think is important, and that is the eternal purpose that God sets in motion when he says, let us make man in our image. Adam is just the beginning of that purpose. And as we read through Scripture, what we find is that Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of that, And that what God's goal is, is not to make us like Adam, but to make us like Jesus. He has this vision for every human being to shape us into the likeness of Christ and to finally create us into creatures whose glory is beyond imagination. The psalmist in Psalm 8 Ask the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Life is sacred because we are made in God's image and God has an eternal purpose that he has set out for every human life. The second thing that scripture says about the sanctity of life is that only God has authority over human life. And that's what we read in Genesis chapter 9. You'll notice that in verses 2 through 3 of Genesis 9, God gave human beings authority over animal life. And he said, all of these creatures are for you and they are under your authority and they are to be used by you and for you. That doesn't mean that they're to be used indiscriminately, but they are for you. They are under your authority. God says, everything that lives and moves can be food for you. But then in verse 5, he makes an important distinction. He says, but for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. He goes on to say that an animal that sheds human blood is accountable to God for that. And every human that sheds human blood is also accountable to God. So humans are under, animals are under our authority. We are under God's authority. And the reason is given in verse 6. Again, because God has made human beings in the image of God. God is the giver of life. 
And the life that he has given to humanity is unique and sacred. And because of that fact, only God has the right and the authority to take it away. There are exceptions, as you know, as you read through Scripture, war and punishment for certain sins. But all of those things ultimately fall under God's authority. And what is condemned is the taking of life by our own authority, rejecting God's authority. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. We're good so far? All right. The point is, and I think this is the thing that we really need to grasp, is that the value of human life is not based on any other thing except that God has said this life, human life, is sacred. The sanctity of life is fundamental and absolute. It originates in God and in his purpose for us and not in anything that we ourselves bring to the table. Professor John Wyatt of the University College of London, who is a uh, pediatric um, scholar there, says this. He says, in Christian thought, the dignity of a human being resides not in what you can do, but in what you are by creation. Human beings do not need to earn the right to be treated as godlike beings. Our dignity is inherent in the way that we have been made. So the sanctity of life and therefore its value is not based on utilitarian factors. That brings up the question that sometimes I think we we wonder, what makes one human being more valuable than another? The color of their skin? What they have been able to achieve? Their IQ? Those are all values that as that human beings look to, and they, whether they are overt in it or not, they, we still kind of rank human beings according to hierarchy. And in our culture, those values ultimately place sports stars and entertainers and the rich and the powerful and the educated at the top of that ranking. It's funny. It's a little bit, I don't know, crass, I guess. But, um, you know, I, I always grew up going to the Armada Fair as a kid. And whenever you go to the fair, you go through the barns and you see the best specimens of this is a Angus, you know, and they got the picture and they have to be posed just right and have all their features in the right spot. And, and this is the pinnacle of what it means to be an Angus and a Holstein and other cattle and other kinds of things. And I, I can't help when I see the red carpet and these people posing, this is the pinnacle of humanity. This is a perfect specimen. Is that? What makes life valuable? Is that the standard? It's not what kind of life we are born to that matters. What matters is God's ultimate purpose for each life. I thought about that um, as I was preparing this and just remembering the funeral service that 
I was privileged to do for Lance McCartney, who was a part of our community during his short life, born with trisomy 18, never able to really function in the way that you and I are blessed to be able to function, and yet brought so much love and joy to so many people. And I thought about the fact that tomorrow, Pastor Brian and I will be conducting the funeral service for Mulligan McGregor, who didn't have an opportunity at life. But according to God's value system, it doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter how beautiful you are. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are. It doesn't matter how much you have achieved. The beggar on the streets of Calcutta and the banking executive have the same potential to be a glorious creature made in the image of God in the likeness of their creator. All the human standards that we apply to determine the value of a person ultimately mean nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits those who, through Christ, realize that destiny to be made in God's image, completed in his likeness. Another implication that is clear in Scripture is that the sacredness of human life extends to those who are not yet born. Psalm 139 makes it abundantly clear that God's love and concern for every human life begins when every human being is still in the womb. In verses 13 through 16, The psalmist says this, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Every day marked out for me was written in your book before any of them came to be. can't read that passage and then insist on the conclusion that God's purpose for humanity only begins when a child is born. Regardless of whether a human life is comprised of a single cell or a fully formed body in the womb, or even a star athlete, God's purpose for them is the same, to make them in his image. Whether they have breathed their first breath or not, they contain his breath. They are spiritual beings with an eternal purpose. And so they are sacred. That fact alone determines their value and their right to life. And he alone has the authority, God alone has the authority, to take that life away. Most of the time, I think, those who support abortion are not bloodthirsty barbarians as they are sometimes portrayed or thought of. 
I think that most people who support abortion do so out of compassion. And I understand that an unanticipated pregnancy can make life even harder for those for whom life is already difficult. And I don't think sometimes for us in our relatively easy middle-class lifestyle, we don't understand the kinds of challenges that people face. We need to have compassion for those who face overwhelming circumstances. At the same time, I think it's so important for us to recognize that our sympathy for the personal difficulties and our concern for the social problems that arise around this issue cannot be a reason to take the life of another human being and deprive them of the opportunity for life. There can be no utilitarian component here. Human beings are sacred because they are created in God's image. And in the end, I would suggest, even though the motive is compassionate, in the end, the price that we pay and the problems we create are much greater than the ones we think we're solving. Because because taking the life of the unborn diminishes all of our humanity. And it diminishes the value of every life. And it undermines God's declaration that life is sacred. Often... That's where our reflection on the sanctity of human life ends. We observe sanctity of life Sunday each year, and if you've been around very long, you know that I have done that. It's important to me. It's a way of marking the tragedy and the sin of abortion, not only in our country, but around the world. And well, we should mark it and observe it for all the reasons that I've already stated. But there is more to the sanctity of life that we must not lose sight of, and we cannot lose sight of if we are to be true to what Scripture says about the sacredness of life created in God's image. The biblical view of life requires that we affirm the dignity and the sacredness not only of the unborn and those at the end of life who increasingly are under threat as well with the rise of the popularity of euthanasia, but also of everyone in between as well. And it also requires more of us than that we not unjustly take life. See, those are the kinds of things that can happen sometimes, I think, right? When, when, when an idea like the sanctity of life gets attached to an important thing, and yet we then focus on that thing and we lose sight of it, of this, the importance of the sanctity of life in all other areas. And as much as we need to continue to affirm the importance of the sanctity of life for the unborn, We also need to not forget the other ways that it's important. 
The sixth commandment says, Thou shalt not commit murder, because it's a violation of the sanctity of life. But Scripture also teaches that there are other ways in which the sanctity of life can be violated that are equally offensive to God, and in fact, in God's eyes, are tantamount to murder. Listen to what James says in chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. He says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Another way in which the sanctity of life can be violated. Jesus goes even further than that on the Sermon on the Mount. That gets a little sticky. He says when you think and speak of your neighbor with contempt... You have essentially committed murder in your heart because you have treated with contempt someone who possesses the image of God. That hits closer to home. John Paul II, in his um, work called Evangelium Vitae, which is translated in English, The Gospel of Life, a book that he wrote in 1995 and is respected um, not just in Catholic circles but in Christian circles as a whole, points out that the taking of life in lots of different ways is an offense and an affront to the sacredness of life. And he includes in that the killing of the unborn, the ending of life that is no longer considered useful, Um, the taking of life by committing murder, and the taking of life by taking one's own life. All of those, he says, are, are affronts to the sanctity of life. But he goes on to say that those are not the only offenses against the sanctity of life. He says, whatever violates human dignity is an affront to the sanctity of life. Coercion, Subhuman living conditions, unjust imprisonment, slavery, prostitution, and inhumane working conditions, situations where human beings are treated as mere tools for profit, all of these are an affront to the sanctity of life. John Calvin affirms that perspective. He pointed out in his commentary on the Ten Commandments, that the commandments have both a negative and a positive side. When the commandment states something positively, it implies the opposite. And when it states something negatively, it implies the opposite. So the command that prohibits us from killing, Calvin says, also requires us to do what we can to help people live. Does that make sense? He says, if we have anything available to us that could serve our neighbor's lives, we must faithfully employ it. If we can do anything that would help them live in peace, 
then we should see to it. If there is anything that endangers them, then we should ward it off if we can. Another writer that is closer to our time. How many of you are familiar with Lewis Smedes? He is a um, writer regarding um, Christian ethics and morality. And he says this regarding the sixth commandment. He says, we have not understood the sixth command's real demands unless we hear in it God's will for us to do all we can to protect our neighbor's life and help it to flourish. This commandment, he says, sends every person toward any neighbor in the human community who needs help to keep life going. Wherever a person needs a hand to help him keep body and soul together, the moral law compels us to reach out with our lives. Why? Because human life is sacred. Because every human being is made in the image of God and therefore possesses a value and dignity that is beyond estimation. And when we disregard suffering, when we fail to offer help to the needy, when we fail to be an advocate for the powerless, or when we treat others with contempt with our attitudes and our speech, we are essentially taking it on ourselves to override God's judgment, taking the decision that certain lives are not that important when God has clearly said that they are. It's important for us, I think, when we think about the sanctity of life, that we not tell ourselves, well, we're right there. We're being obedient. We're being what God wants us to be because we're against abortion. Does that make sense? Because there's much more to it than that. The fact that life is sacred requires not only that we not take the life of the unborn or those we deem no longer useful. The sanctity of life requires not only that we not murder, but it also requires that we do what we can to help our neighbor live. That we ensure not only that they have clothes and food, but also that they are free of exploitation, that there are opportunities available to them, that we reach back for them when they fall behind and help them get on their feet, that we treat them with the respect and the dignity that is due to all who are made in God's image, even if they're your enemy. Think about some of those things as I read the Old Testament and some of the laws in Leviticus about the Sabbath and about gleaning. God called his people to not, he he structured a society that didn't give handouts to the undeserving, but also was committed not to leaving people behind. And did it in such a way that it affirmed their dignity, 
by giving them an opportunity to work, opportunity to establish life that was willing to reach back for those who were falling behind and take hold and pull them forward with the rest. All of that is based on this biblical view that human beings are created in God's image and life is sacred. So let me leave you with a few takeaways. First, we need to continue to fight the battle against the sin of abortion and speak for those who can't speak for themselves. We have been blessed in recent years. One of the things that the Trump administration has accomplished has been to make strides in this area. And we have been blessed by that. Our nation has made steps in the right direction, I think, in this area. And not only that, but attitudes toward abortion are changing. And that's reason for optimism. And I have to say, that gives me some pause as the new administration begins to reverse some of those things. And I don't know how that will look, but I do have pause. We need to stay the course until the sin of abortion is no longer legitimized by a law that is not God's law. We need to stay the course. It is equally important that we stand against policies that allow for exploitation of others, that we stand against policies that perpetuate racism an unequal opportunity that we stand against policies that burden the poor and those who aren't able to defend themselves. And in saying that, I'm very mindful of all the conversation and all the stuff that's going on in politics about these issues. And I want to just call us all, let's base our decisions on the Bible, not on the platform of a party, or the platform of a party we're opposed to, but on what the Bible says. And that may put us at odds with people that in other areas we can support. Policies are important. But our primary responsibility as Christians, I'm not saying we don't have political responsibility, our primary responsibility is not political, it's personal. It's not enough for us to vote and send money. That is not a fulfillment of the scriptural command and commitment to the sanctity of life. When we turn people into statistics or causes, we also diminish the sanctity of life. And that is why these issues have to be personal. We need to commit ourselves to see the forgotten and the overlooked and the invisible. I often remind you of that passage in the Old Testament in Genesis where God meets Hagar. And uh, she says, after her encounter with God, she says, This is Lahai Roy. He is the God who sees me. 
if we are to be like God and affirm the sanctity of life, we need to see people like Hagar. We need to see them. The parable that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan is along those same lines. The religious people passed by. They didn't see him lying in the street. I recognize that it can seem overwhelming. When you look at the problems of the world and think, well, what can I do? Do you you ever do that? (laughs) I do. But we're not called to solve world hunger. We're called to serve our neighbor in need. So policies are important, but in the end, it needs to be personal. Thirdly, I would say, or I guess this is the fourth one, we're moving so fast I've lost track of time. Fourthly, we need to refuse to cultivate contempt in our hearts. We live in a caustic environment, and it is getting more commonplace every day to speak of those that we don't agree with, with contempt. Again, I'm not advocating the current program of political correctness and hate speech and all that stuff. That's, that doesn't have anything to do with the word of God. But I am challenging all of us to conduct ourselves in our speech and our attitudes based on what the Bible says about the sacredness of life and what it means to respect the dignity of other people in the way that we talk about them and how seriously God takes that. Finally, We need to be proclaimers of the gospel. That too is also an issue that is rooted in the sanctity of life. Every human being has the potential to be a glorious creature. God has created them and his desire is that they would fulfill that eternal destiny that his likeness would be complete in them. But apart from the gospel, that purpose cannot be fulfilled. So we acknowledge the sacredness of life when we boldly share with people the message of the gospel. And we tell them, this is God's vision for you. This is why you are so valuable. Not because there's anything in you, but because of what God has determined to do for you. And everything that he gave, the price that he paid in his son. In order to fulfill that purpose. So brothers and sisters on this Sanctity of Life Sunday... I encourage us all to affirm that life is sacred, made in the image of God, and then to live toward each other in that truth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the way, Lord, the way that it cuts through 
all the clamor and the clatter and speaks to us clearly of what is true and what is right. Father, I pray that you would help us as we try to navigate the challenges and all the messages that we hear and all the different opinions that are circulated in this world, but ultimately are based on human wisdom. Father, may we draw our commitments and our convictions from your word. May they guide us, enlighten us by your spirit to see it, and then embolden us by your spirit to live it and proclaim it. Help us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.